0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. Well, thank you very much. I should remind you that my brother is a novelist, and so a writer of fiction. I felt very honored, and also very flattered, to be invited to give this Howison Lecture in Berkeley in 2012. And the feeling was only increased when I read the list of my predecessors in this office, some 70-odd lecturers, some of them really pretty odd, but on the whole, (laughs) a very, very distinguished lot. You have no hope of hearing anything of the same standard as what you would have heard here 20 or 30 years ago. I fear also that what I have to say would not have commended itself to the philosopher for whom this lecture is named. But I do think that the subject would have appealed to him as a suitably philosophical subject. The subject is death. And death, after all, is the final end of all our interests and one of the few things in life of which we can be really certain. And I find each year it becomes more certain. Of ancient philosophers, the Epicureans were particularly preoccupied by death. They thought they said, that most men live in a terror of dying, perpetually racked, as Lucretius put it, by the fear of Acheron, which shakes human life from top to bottom, which covers everything with the black of night, which prevents all clear and unsullied pleasure. The reaper with the scythe stands always at our shoulder. His fleshless hand directs our every thought and action. And his inescapable presence fills our every moment with fear and trembling. We are thanatophobes, poor, miserable thanatophobes. Moved by that distressful state of affairs... The Epicureans, being philanthropical philosophers, thought they could do something about it. They offered their fellow men a cure for their morbid disease. This cure was not pharmacological, it didn't involve taking drugs or making drugs. It was consequently very cheap and had no side effects. The cure was an argument a philosophical argument. Take this argument, they said, and your dread of death will at first abate and then disappear, its place being taken by pleasure, joy and delight. The argument ran roughly like this. What happens, said the Epicureans, to animals when they die, to animals, whether they're ants or armadillos, mice or men, is that their souls part company with their bodies. Every animal, they said, is a composite being, composed of two primary bits, a body and a soul. So the death of an animal is the dissolution of a composite being and consequently the annihilation of that being. Once dead, a mouse exists no more. And the same is true of men. Now once it's dead in that case, nothing more can happen to a mouse or to a man because there's nothing there for anything to happen to. And in particular, nothing nasty or unpleasant can happen to a mouse or to a man once it's dead. For that being so, there's no reason in the world why anyone, mouse or man, should give a hoot about being dead and in particular, no reason in the world why anyone should be afraid of being dead. Death, as Lucretius says, is nothing to us. It's none of our business. When he says that death is nothing to us, he means being dead. The state of being dead is nothing to us dying of course, the process of dying may be, and sometimes was a peculiarly unpleasant business he's not talking about that when he says death is nothing to us he means that my death is nothing to me and your death is nothing to you it might well be that your death meant a lot to me and also, though less probably that mine meant something to you he says nothing about that And when he says, Lucretius, that death is none of our business, what he means is that whatever may happen once I'm dead is no concern of mine. It would be as absurd, as irrational, for me to worry about being dead, about what happens once I'm dead, as it would be for me to lose sleep over the question of what happens on other galaxies or to waste my time reflecting upon the political constitution of Uruguay. Lucretius himself doesn't, of course, refer to Uruguay. (laughs) Whatever may happen during a long period of time in which I am dead, none of that is any business of mine. For, as the Epicureans like to put it, when death is, I am not, and when I am Death is not. You might ask various questions about that argument. How good is it? You might wonder, for example, whether it really did the work that the Epicureans thought it could do. Suppose that I take in that argument and think about it. Will I be cured of this morbid fear of death? Well, I don't know what the answer to that is, beyond saying that it seems to me that the Epicurean argument was, therapeutically speaking, at least as good as any cure which any ancient doctor offered for any ordinary disease. But my concern, qua philosopher, so to speak, is not with the question of the efficacy of the argument, but whether, philosophically speaking, it's a decent argument. That is to say... Does it reach a true conclusion by valid argumentation from true premises? And that's what I'm going to talk about now. It's perhaps worth, at the cost of pedantry, which is another name I sometimes think for philosophy, (laughs) to set out the argument a little more formally. There are different ways of doing it. Here's one way. It has four premises, okay? The first premise says, The death of an animal is a separation of its body and its soul. A cat dies when its body and its soul comes apart. It's dead when its soul and its body are apart. That's the first premise, what death is. The second premise, says that animals are essentially composites of two bits, a body and a soul. A cat isn't a body which just happens to be attached to a soul, nor a soul which just happens to be in contact with a body. A cat is essentially a bipartite creature, a soul plus body. From those two premises, that death is separation of body and soul, Unless an animal is a composite of body and soul, it follows in the Epicurean argument. And once an animal is dead, it doesn't exist. Once my cat has killed the mouse, the mouse exists no more, because the mouse is a composite of body and soul, and that composite exists no more, having been separated by my cat. The third premise claims that nothing can happen to an animal or indeed to anything else at a time when it doesn't exist. If that's so, it follows that nothing can happen to a cat or to any other animal at a time when it's dead because when it's dead it doesn't exist and when it doesn't exist nothing can happen to it. The fourth premise states that if nothing can happen to an animal at a given time, then nothing which happens at that time is of any concern to the animal. If the cat isn't there in 2014, then nothing that happens in 2014 can be any business of the cat's. And from that premise and the preceding conclusion, it follows that nothing whatever which happens at a time when an animal is dead is of any concern to that animal. Death is nothing to us. When I was a boy, many years ago, centuries ago, When I first read that icon, I thought it was really bloody good. I still think it's pretty bloody good, but not as good as I thought it was. You might first ask, well, I I don't know if you would, I'm first going to ask, well, what the Epicureans' ancient colleagues would have or did think of this argument. First of all, Though they disagreed with the Epicureans on almost every point in philosophy, all ancient philosophers agreed with them on their first premise, namely, that the death of an animal is the separation of its soul from its body. The first Christian philosopher who wrote about the soul, namely Tertullian, says, all the pagan philosophers agree that death is the separation of soul from body, and he says they're right. Of course, the pagans thought that death was a natural event, whereas Tertullian knows that it's not natural, but rather a punishment visited on humans because a certain woman, a long time ago, ate a fruit from a forbidden tree. But that diverting fantasy apart, the Christian philosophers agreed with the pagan philosophers about the nature of death. Death, for all animals, human or not, is a decomposition, a coming apart of body and soul. <clears throat> so far, so good for the Epicureans, but after that, things go to pot. Pot. When you get to the second premise, the premise according to which animals are essentially composites of body and soul, you find that (coughs) the (coughs) Platonist philosophers disagree. Take Arthur. Arthur is a cat. One of my cats, one of my favourite cats who's been dead for some time. Nice grey cat. Arthur, according to the Platonists was, when he was alive, an embodied soul. But Arthur was not a composite being. He was not made up of a feline body and a feline soul. No, he was a soul. Well, he still is a soul, of course. And he wasn't a feline soul, Arthur, because souls don't come in species. Arthur, rather, was a soul who, for a while inhabited, or took on, a feline body. In this life, he had a feline body. When he died, he took off his feline body. So his death, though it's a separation of body from soul, isn't a matter of extinction or his ceasing to exist. After all, Gypsy Rose Lee didn't cease to exist each time she reached the climax of her striptease. Nor did she cease to exist when she finally stripped off her body. What happened to her after her death? Well, who knows? According to Plato, I guess she probably returned to Earth in a new body, perhaps the body of a peacock or a hoopoe. Arthur, on the other hand, being a virtuous cat, was probably allowed by the infernal judges to continue as a disembodied soul, in which state he now enjoys, I like to think, the pure and true pleasures of philosophical contemplation. (laughs) However that may be, according to the Platonists, death isn't our extinction, and we have every reason to worry about what's going to happen to us once we are dead. Most ancient thinkers, not unreasonably, thought that that, from that point of view, as from most others, Platonism was absurd. And of course I agree with these people. (laughs) The Stoics, for example, and the Christians too, agreed with the Epicureans, that we are composite entities. Animals aren't souls. They're bipartite things consisting of bodies and souls. Not only that, Stoics and Christians would happily accept the second premise of the Epicurean argument, that when a cat or any other animal is dead, it exists no more. But they thought, or at least they would have thought, had they addressed specifically the Epicurean argument, that this second premise was not good enough for the Epicureans. For from the second premise, that when an animal is dead it doesn't exist... the the Epicureans move on to a conclusion that after an animal's dead, nothing can happen to it. And this influence, Stoics and Christians would have pointed out, doesn't work. True, while or when an animal is dead, they might have said, nothing can happen to it. It doesn't exist, nothing can happen to it but it doesn't follow from the fact that when it's dead, nothing can happen to it, that once it's dead, nothing can ever happen to it. When my cat Galen, I like to change cats from time to time, died, his body and soul party company, according to Stoics and Christians, and he ceased to exist. Throughout the time in which he was dead... He didn't exist. And so, let us concede, nothing could happen to him. But what if he didn't stay dead? What if the two parts of Galen, like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, divorced only to remarry? (laughs) Well, that's not just a fantasy. Well, of course, it's a fantasy. But it's not just an invention. It's exactly what does happen according to the Stoics. When we die, our bodies and our souls part. Eventually, the whole world goes up in flames. But then things start up again. And with the inevitability of causation, bodies and souls come back. And there we are again. The same old bloody thing, one after another. (coughs) The Christian philosophers, of course, held the same curious view, or a similar view. To be sure, when I'm dead, I don't exist. There's one bit of me, namely my body, which is sleeping in a crematorium, and another bit of me, namely my soul, which is waiting in hell. (laughs) It is waiting in hell. But sometime later, those two things are going to come together again. What will happen then, according to the Christians, isn't quite the same as what will happen then, according to Plato. Rather, what will happen then is either that I shall have, suffer perpetual torment in hell or else perpetual tedium in heaven... In either event, Christians had every reason to be apprehensive about death, not about what was going to happen when they were dead, but about what was going to happen when they stopped being dead, (laughs) when the last trumpet sounded, and when the dead are raised. Well, there are two, I think rather serious objections, prima facie, to the Epicurean argument. The Epicureans suppose that we are essentially composite beings of body and soul, the the Platonists say not at all. The Epicureans suppose, though they don't say this explicitly, that once we're dead, we're dead forever. Other philosophers hold that that's not true at all. Sure, we're dead for a while, but after a, while, a long while, we revive. There are numerous ways in which an Epicurean might reply to those objections. I shan't mention the replies which they gave explicitly or implicitly, but rather suggest the reply That they ought to have given, or at least the reply that I'm going to give on their behalf. (laughs) It's not an Epicurean reply, but it's a reply which does the best for the Epicureans that can be done. It means stepping back to look again at the first premise of the argument the premise that death is a matter of the separation of a body and a soul. That notion, as Tertullian says, was a commonplace in antiquity, at least a commonplace among ancient philosophers. But it's not an evident truth. I mean, it certainly isn't, so to speak, what they call an analytical truth. There's no part of the meaning of the word to die in English, or of apophthneske in Greek, that dying is a matter of a soul separation from a body. And the more one thinks about it, at least the more I think about it, the stranger it becomes. A couple of days ago, Perdita, the third of my cats to be introduced, (laughs) was sitting on the sundial in the garden. She noticed a mouse. There are lots of mice in the garden. She jumped down, caught the mouse, played with it for a bit, as cats do, whopped it with her paw and killed it and then ate it. What happened? Well, according to the uh, view accepted by all ancient philosophers, what Perdita did was skillfully separate the mouse into two parts. A mouse soul and a mouse body. And she then ate the more nutritious of the two parts. Minus the gallbladder. (laughs) Is that the plain truth of the matter, that she divided the mouse into two parts? I don't think anyone would ever say that so, unless he were in the grips of a curious philosophy or very concerned to make his audience laugh. I mean, okay. Death is a matter of separating body and soul. You think of that in your philosophical study, but once you go out into into the real world, it doesn't seem the sort of thing you're likely to say. And it's worse than that. It's worse than that because when the ancient philosophers say that death is a separation of body and soul, you might wonder what on earth they mean. And in particular, you might wonder what on earth they mean by the word soul. After all, we've all come across bodies... With a bit of luck. <laughs> but I've never come across a soul. Partly because I've no idea what it would be to come across a soul. And nor have you. In order for the Epicurean argument to work, and for this first premise that death is a separation of body and soul to be true or to have any sense... I see I should have referred to squirrels, not to mice. All right? uh, we have to be able to give some appropriate sense to the word soul. Not any old sense, but a sense such that first, that there will turn out to be such things as souls, and that secondly, souls will be the sort of things that could intelligibly be said to be attached to and then separated from bodies. This, of course, is a complicated matter, so I should be uh, as simple as possible. It seems to me that the only way to make an honest expression out of the term soul is a roughly Aristotelian way. The Aristotelian way, as I call it, goes like this. There's something which differentiates living things from non-living things, which differentiates cats from crystals or comets, say. That's the fact, and this is trivial, OK, that living things are, as we say, animate. The Greek word for animate is empsukos. So, living things are empsuka, whereas non living things are apsuka. And that's trivial, right? The English word animate, in a sense which is trivial that living things are animate, comes from the Latin animatus, which is connected with the noun anima in Latin. And in the same way, the Greek adjective empsukos comes from the Greek noun, psyche. Okay? Now, the normal English for the Latin word anima is soul. So animatus might be translated as something like ensouled, or having a soul. The normal English for the Greek word psyche, again, is soul. So the word empsychos might be translated and often is as ensouled or having a soul now it's true it's a trivial truth that living things are ensuka so it's true a trivial truth that living things have psukai that is to say it's true a trivial truth that all living things have souls that's the way to present the word soul and make sense of it You might think that in that case it's clear that living things are compounds of body and soul. Perdita is a living thing, so trivially she has a soul. She's animate, she's empsychos, she has a soul. Surely she's evident she also has a body, and so it follows, doesn't it, as the second premise has it, That she's a compound of body and soul, and that the dissolution of that compound is her death. Well, no, that's not true at all. It isn't evident that Perdita has a body. Indeed, it seems to be quite evident that my cat Perdita doesn't have a body. She is a body. She doesn't possess a body in the way in which someone might possess a hat. She is a body. Her body isn't a part of her, it's her. Sorry. Can you see the cat Perdita? Yes. Well, you're going to see a part of her, which part? Her body. That's absurd. If you see the body, you see the cat, you see Perdita. So forget about that. Okay. Imagine that's false. Okay, so say She really has got a body, she isn't a body, she has a body. So suppose then that Perdita has a body and also, trivially, has a soul. Doesn't it follow that her soul is a part of her? Well, not at all. For her to have a soul is for her to be animate, to be a living thing. And for her to be a living thing, as Aristotle says, is for her to have a certain set of capacities, the capacity to... Uh, ...nourish herself, to reproduce, which I'm afraid she no longer had, which had her spade. The capacity to eat, to purr, to move about, to play, and so on. To possess a soul, to be animate, is to possess a soul. To possess a soul is to have a set of capacities. So what a soul is if it's anything at all, is a set of capacities. And a thing's capacities are not a part of it. In Herbert Reed's poem, the naming of parts, among the parts you name the lower sling swivel, the upper sling swivel and the piling swivel. I haven't the faintest idea what they are, but those are the parts of the rifle. You don't also name the capacity to kill a man at 500 yards. That capacity, which is possessed by the rifle, isn't a part of the rifle. If I change animals now for a moment, a llama, this particular llama is called Lorenzo, has an apparently limitless limitless capacity to digest grass. That capacity isn't a part of him in the way in which his third stomach is a part of him. He also has a very keen sense of hearing, but his keen sense of hearing isn't a part of him in the way in which his ears are parts of him. In short, an animal's soul being a set of capacities isn't a part of an animal and an animal isn't a composite of two parts, body and soul. I think that that's the only sensible way of dealing with souls and the like. And I offer it to a good Epicurean. I think that with, on that account the Epicureans will be able to get round some of the more obvious objections raised by Platonists, Stoics and Christians to their argument about death. Of course, if they accept the Epicurean view, uh, if, if the Epicureans accept the Aristotelian view, they do so at a cost. If you take the Aristotelian view... Death may be the dissolution of body and soul. When you die, you lose your vital capacities, but it doesn't follow, and it's not true, that when you die, you cease to exist. And it's crucial to the, Aristotelian, to the Epicurean argument that death is an extinction. I actually think that's false. Death isn't an extinction. When my cat Galen died, my granddaughter, Mary, wanted to see Galen before I buried him. I showed her Galen in a cardboard box. There was the cat, Galen. He was dead, but he hadn't ceased to exist. After all, you could still see him, touch him, and shed tears over him. And he was, of course, still a cat. A dead cat, but nonetheless a cat. Generally speaking, when things die, they go on existing for a while. Not often for very long, but in a few cases. For example, the case of Jeremy Bentham, whom you can still see in London, for centuries. Insofar as the Epicurean argument requires that death be an extinction, an end of existence, the Epicureans must be chary about accepting an Aristotelian view of the nature of the soul. Nonetheless, I think that uh, with various uh, uh, modifications to their view, they can reasonably hold, or uh, Neo-Epicurean can reasonably hold death, as Aristotle says, is the loss of vital capacities. At death or shortly after, an animal ceases irrevocably to exist. <coughs> However that may be, I want now to turn to the third premise of the argument, the premise according to which once when a thing doesn't exist, nothing can touch it. I find this premise, in some ways, the most perplexing premise of the argument. In a way, it seems evidently true. If the thing isn't there, how can anything possibly happen to it? On the other hand, it's quite difficult to find a precise formulation of the premise which renders it true. You might think the obvious way of taking the premise is something like this. If an item doesn't exist at a given time, then nothing, nothing whatever can come to be true of the item at that time. Not that nothing can be true of the item at that time. Any number of things, as Aristotle almost said, are now true of Homer. For example, that Homer's a poet that he wrote in Greek. The fact that he doesn't exist doesn't stop those things being true of him. But perhaps nothing can come to be true of Homer now that he doesn't exist anymore. Well, you think about that for a moment, it's quite clear it's not true. Any number of things, every day, come to be true of Homer, which weren't true before. Take the predicate, has been read, a uh, predicate uh, schema, has been read by N people, okay? has been read by 30,000 people, 30,001 people. I take it that pretty well every day of the year, A predicate of that sort comes to be true of Homer, which wasn't true of him before. He gains new readers every year, long after his extinction. In the same sort of way, world record holders may lose their titles long after they have ceased to exist. Recently, a horse has become tremendously famous decades after its death. And even philosophers have their posthumous ups and downs. (laughs) Non-existence doesn't stop things happening to you. I mean, clearly that's true, right? there are any number of things you might say about that, I think the best way to approach it is to take the third and the fourth premise in tandem. Third and fourth premises in tandem together. The third premise says... If a thing doesn't exist, nothing can happen to it. Well, that's not true. So we need something like if a thing doesn't exist, nothing of a given sort, nothing of sort X can happen to it. And then the fourth premise reads something like if nothing of a sort X can happen to an object, then it has no reason to care about it. So we look for the magic ingredient X. Third premise now says nothing, once a thing is, no longer exists, nothing of a given sort can happen to it. And a fourth premise says that if nothing of a given sort, of that given sort, can happen to something, then that thing has no reason for concern about it. So what's the pos- what possible values are there for this predicate, this term X? All the ancient texts suggest, what one would think anyway, that X has something to do with helping and harming. So you might think that the third premise should be something like, if an object doesn't exist at a given time, then nothing which happens at that time can help or harm it. Well, that, of course, is quite clearly false. Any number of things happened before I existed which harmed me. For example, I now have frightful teeth because before I ever existed, my mother didn't get enough calcium. But perhaps what really counts here is that once a thing has ceased to exist, nothing that happens thereafter can harm it or hurt it. Is that true? Well, I don't know. If you've been to Venice, you would have seen in the Grand Hall of the Doges that frieze of portraits of the successive Doges. The portraits, every so often, are interrupted by black rectangles. Those black rectangles cover, blank out, the portraits of doges who suffered damnatio memoriae. They were damned. Their memory was damned. Damnatio memoriae is something that only happened to you once you're dead. You can't suffer damnatio memoriae when you're still alive. <laughs> but surely damnatio memoriae is a frightful thing to happen to you. It harms you. It hurts you. If I were a doge looking up at this series of freezers and black spaces, I'd th- think, good God, I hope they don't give me a black spot. If they do, that'll be awful. Well, were the doges harmed posthumously by having their memories damned, or weren't they? I think that that's a question for decision, not, it's neither, there's no true answer, you just decide. But I think that behind that lies something like the following question, the following idea, that even if the doge is harmed, once well, he no longer exists, he doesn't suffer from the harm, he doesn't feel the harm and surely the Epicureans really are getting in their third premise at something of of this sort once an animal no longer exists he can't any longer feel or experience anything at all a fortiori it can't feel or experience anything pleasant or unpleasant. It can't feel or experience anything agreeable or disagreeable. At any rate, that seems to me to be the most plausible way of reconstruing the third premise of the argument. Okay. So, so, the, so The sort X, which... Can't affect us is a sort of felt suffering or felt benefit. If that's right, then the fourth premise of the argument must say that if at a given time I can neither I cannot feel or experience anything pleasant or unpleasant, then what happens at that time? is no concern of mine. If from a given time onward, an animal can experience nothing at all and meet with no sensation whatsoever, then nothing which happens at that time, according to the Epicureans, is of any concern to the animal. I think something like that was the fourth premise of the Epicurean argument and I think that's ultimately why the Epicurean argument doesn't work. Because it's straightforwardly false, I think, that we have no reason to be concerned about states of affairs in which we ourselves can have no feelings of any sort. Here are a couple of types of examples, or lots. The first type of example concerns what I call altruistic fears and hopes. Despite what the Epicureans sometimes seem to say, animals in general, and humans in particular, are just occasionally concerned with things other than themselves. Lorenzo, the Lama, cares for Leonora, his lady wife, and for Laura, their daughter. That's evident. Female cats generally care for their kittens, and some human parents actually care for their children. In particular, one animal may be frightened for another. I recently came across the case of Lieutenant Colonel Pothecary. The name, it's a pseudonym, but it's a true story, who commanded the British Battalion during the Second World War. His battalion landed in Normandy on D-Day. And just before D-Day, Pothecary learnt that his eldest son, who was a captain in the Royal Navy, had had his ship torpedoed and was drifting in mid-Atlantic in a small boat. Pothecary was riven with fear. Fear for himself, of course, since he was likely to meet pain, mutilation, or death. But also fear for his men, who were likely to meet the same fate, and for whom he was responsible. And above all, according to this story, fear for his son, whom he loved. These you might call altruistic fears, and as far as I can see, they're just as oppressive and just as real as any egocentric fears, and they're also just as rational. That being so, it follows, it's clear, that an animal, a man, might reasonably, in certain circumstances, fear its own death. If a parent dies, who's going to look after the children? If Pothecary is killed, what will happen to his men? One of my heroes from English history is Lord Nelson, Horatio Nelson. Frightful cad in many ways, but still. He knew no fear. He was also an ostentatious sort of chap. At the Battle of Trafalgar, he stood on the poop deck of HMS Victory, in his full naval finery, and he was shot by a French sniper and died shortly afterwards. He hadn't been afraid to die, but he ought to have been. He ought to have feared not for himself, but for his men, and also, of course, for England, which expected that every man would do his duty, which Nelson clearly didn't do. Had Nelson been properly afraid and acted in accordance with his proper fear, fear not for himself, but for other people and other things, he would have survived to encourage his men and defend his country. All that is perfectly obvious, and you might say the Epicureans must have thought of it. Well, they didn't. But apart from altruistic fears, there are also egocentric reasons for fearing death, or at least, for being pretty reluctant to die i shan't ah uh, comment upon that sort of angst or existential fear of nothing which my brother so memorably describes in his book i 'm thinking of something much more banal and much more common and real it 's just this: most of us most of the time have various long-term projects. At the moment, I'm trying to write a book about the Church Fathers. All of us, I suppose, most of the time have middle-term projects. For example, the project to breed white canaries. And we all, surely, always have short-term projects, even if it's only the project to eat crackers in bed. If you have plans and projects, then, of course, you want those plans and projects to be brought to completion. And normally, though not always, the only person who can bring them to completion is yourself. After all, some projects can't be completed by anyone other than yourself. My project of writing a book on the church fathers could be completed after my death by Tony Long, for example. But my short term project of rereading Maupassant's Bel Ami couldn't possibly be completed by anyone other than me. Now, if I'm writing a book, I probably need to stay alive for another two or three years to do it. And that gives me a reason for avoiding death, just as it gives me a reason for trying to stave off Alzheimer's, DTs, and all the other things which senility brings on. If it's my project, this is terribly serious, if it's my project to read better than me, I need at least two or three hours. And just as that gives me a good reason for not wanting to fall asleep at once, it gives me a good reason for not wanting to die at once. It doesn't, of course, give me a reason for being corroded with fear at the thought of being dead, but it does give me a reason for being miffed or vexed or even enraged if I learnt that I was about to die there's a further step each of us always has some project or plan which can't be completed once we're dead each of us therefore always has a good reason for not wanting to be dead indeed for wanting not to be dead not that we have a reason for wanting never to be dead, nor that we ever have a reason, or I don't, for wanting to live for another 500 years. But now I have a reason for wanting to live for another five minutes, say, to get to the end of this lecture. <laughs> and after five minutes, I should have a reason for wanting to live another five minutes, to get over to the questions, and so on. I'll always have a good reason. For not wanting to, d- to be dead. Ad infinitum, or rather ad mortem. For those reasons, then, I think that ultimately the Epicurean argument doesn't reach its conclusion. Much so I admire the argument. Hamlet says to sleep, to die, to sleep, to sleep, a chance to dream, either as the rub for in that sleep of death what dreams may come. There the Epicureans disagree with Hamlet. They tell him truly that death is not a sleep at all. The big sleep isn't a big sleep. Cemeteries, despite their etymology, aren't dormitories. Once you're dead, you dream no more. Hamlet goes on to ask, who would fardels bear but for the fear of something after death? And there, unless I'm mistaken, the Epicureans agree with Hamlet. They say true, no one would bear fardels, put up with this life, unless they're afraid that things would be even worse for them after death. But there, I think, the Epicureans are wrong. There are plenty of reasons other than the fear of post-mortem distress, for preferring fardels to a bare bodkin. Some of the reasons are altruistic. Hamlet, for example, might have thought of his duties as the kingdom of Denmark. Others are egocentric. Hamlet might have thought of his plan, just for discovering exactly how many things there are in, fev- in heaven and earth which are not dreamt of in Horatio's philosophy. <laughs> Those are not reasons, or not all of them are reasons for fearing death, but they are reasons for being concerned about death, for worrying about dying, for wanting, sometimes wanting very much, not to die now. No argument can extirpate such worries, nor should it, because they are reasonable worries. So what's to be done? This is really the end, okay? If philanthropic Epicureans do not in the end provide a satisfactory answer to the question, what's to be done? What can we poor philosophers do? What can we say to those about to die? Two things, right? First of all, do all you can to make sure that other people and other things don't depend on your own survival. I have insured my life, I've set up a trust fund for my grandchildren and I'm determined to accept no appointment in the armed forces from now on. (laughs) Secondly, the older I get, the more I adjust my plans and projects. I keep them short term. Those projects I have now can either be carried on successfully by someone else after I'm dead, or only take another two and a half minutes, I think, or, anyway, are projects I don't care too much about. That, I think, is the philosophical answer to the question, what should we do about the prospect of dying? You will perhaps think this is not really a philosophical answer. Rather, it's an answer given by common sense. Well, I agree. But as Bishop Berkeley put it, one of the chief tasks of philosophy... Is to be eternally recalling man to common sense. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at Uctv.tv.